Ladies and gentlemen, before today's episode of the Trap Draw, I want to thank our sponsor, Herbal Active, makers of CBD products. You can check out their website, herbalactive.com, U-R-B-A-L-A-C-T-I-V. Use the promo code TRAPDRAW25, a new one this week. TRAPDRAW25 gets you 25% off all products. Um, They are running this through the end of April, so be sure to use the new promo code TRAPDRAW25 and get 25% off all products. They have a ton of new stuff in the store from mints to balm uh, to drops. Uh, They have stuff for your pets. They, they just have a very full store, so if you're curious and want to check it out, now's a great time. All their products contain 99.5% pure CBD. Uh, they contain zero THC. Uh, they're available to ship all 50 states, completely legal. Once again, use the promo code TRAPDRAW25. gets you 25% off your entire order at herbalactive.com. U-R-B-A-L-A-C-T-I-V, and that runs through the end of April. Thank them for their sponsorship, and now on to today's episode. Folks, welcome to another episode of the Trap Draw Podcast. Another good one for you. I am joined uh, with me is the merch czar, Neil Schuster, my strap compatriot. How are you? Randy, I'm well. Uh, some people don't like the term folks. I know. I'm getting off, ladies and gentlemen. I, I don't know. I don't know why I just kind of winged it there. Folks is sometimes it's, you know, I don't, I don't think offensive is the right word, but kind of maybe demeaning. Oh, hey, folks. Demeaning, really? Well, you know, it's maybe a New York thing. I was talking to somebody in New York. They're like, I hate the term "folks." It makes it maybe it's Southern. It's maybe it's southern. a little Midwesterner. Yeah, like oh, folks, all the folks, like the old people. Anyway, okay, people, men, women, children, welcome. Uh, Neil, we we <laughs> thank have, you, Mister Jeezy, <laughs> and of course, thank you, Mister Jeezy. Neil, we are talking to Stephen Dubner, um, author, podcaster, Freakonomic fame, uh, Stephen Dubner. How, how the heck did this come about? Uh, well, I met him at the... <laughs> good question. Yeah. Uh, I was at the Columbia Golf Banquet. I didn't play golf at Columbia, but uh, I met the coach at you know Columbia football outing, and then he asked me to come to the banquet. And it turns out that Stephen Dubner is a, uh, plays golf at the same uh, club. He's a big golfer, and he plays golf at the same club and gets lessons from the head coach. And uh, it's kind of like a, a bit of a, a team mentor in a way. So I get to talk to him at dinner and, uh, you know, just was like, I'm a huge Freakonomics guy. I listen to the podcast and kind of that's what got me into to podcasts. So, you know, I sent him a note after I heard him on Rogan and, and Bill Simmons, which you should all go listen to those podcasts. Um, and every time he tried to start talking about golf, it was like, you know, it, it got shut down pretty quickly by, uh, you know, MMA enthusiast. 
Rogan, you know, and I was like, well, man, maybe he wants to talk golf. So I, yeah, I reached out to him and we were supposed to play golf this month, but, but, uh, that's, that's been postponed like everything else. So he was nice enough to join us for a 45 minute conversation. Yeah. And I should say, I undersold his biography a little bit. He is, uh, like I say, he's an author, um, podcast host, radio host, journalist, uh, has written for, you know, the New York Times, the New Yorker, Time Magazine, uh, kind of a heavyweight, uh, if you will, in print journalism. And then uh, with the with the Freakonomic books, we're, we're widely popular and turned that into uh, a, a whole podcast uh, franchise. 15 million global monthly downloads. Is that, is that any good? Is that, yeah, I don't know. Like, I think it's top two, three in... Like consistently, yeah. he clips us every month, every like we're, time. We're I mean, nipping it's at his nice heels. of our competition to come on to the trap draw. <laughs> I'll tell you that. Uh, no, but we we wanted to do this intro just so everybody knows who we're talking to, and also so we didn't waste time because we had a we had a forty five minute block of time, and we didn't want to hard out time hard, is money. Hard out, you know come it on. is. These influential people don't have a ton of time <laughs> for this trap boys. Uh, no, but hopefully you enjoy the conversation. We touch on golf early. Uh, and then we get into kind of the podcast business and uh, how he goes about creating his podcast and, um, you know, some of his favorites from the past. So I, I enjoyed the convo and I I hope uh, hope the folks out there do too. <laughs> awesome. Uh, well, without further ado, here's our conversation with uh, Stephen Dubner. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm here with Big Randy as always. Hey, Neil. And uh, Stephen Dubner uh, on the line with us. Stephen, how are you? Hey, I'm uh, all things considered good, but you know, I live in New York City and it's been a, it's for everybody, it's been a rough, I guess, five weeks now. So yeah, but um, looking for hope and looking for distractions. So I'm very excited to talk to you guys. And you're, you're up by uh, Columbia, you're on the Upper West Side? I'm Upper West. Yeah, not too near Columbia, kind of middle, middle of the Upper West Side where it's, you know, a band, you know, it's empty out. Um, and it's sobering. And, you know, I have a lot of friends who are doctors and work in healthcare. I have several friends or friends of friends who, who've died. You know, all of them, all the ones who've died are, I would say, at least late 70s. So it's not, you know, well, actually, there was one one parent at my kid's school um, who's in his young, early 50s. So it's, it's definitely, um, it's, unavoidable to recognize that you're you're in a place i'm not saying it's the place where it's happening obviously but in a place and you know it's like sirens are a constant um and the best part of the day is at 7 p.m when everybody uh opens their windows and claps and hollers in support of uh the healthcare workers it's kind of like the the moment of um citywide unity toward that so um so anyway you know i don't mean to to bring us um, off whatever golf adjacent topics we can get to, but that's that's what life is like here right now. Yeah, I, I normally reside in Brooklyn. I'm down in, in Jacksonville, but my roommate's been keeping me updated on things. So happy to hear that you're safe. And, and I think we have some, some uh, hopefully some NYC topics at the end, I guess create some, uh, uh, a distraction, if you will, um, for maybe a few minutes and, and we're sorry, we're struggling with a good segue, Stephen. That's, I, there's no easy way to kind of, yeah, change, change topics from that. I'm, yeah. I'm sorry. Um, no, I will say this. I'm watching as much golf channel now as I do when there's golf going on. So if I'm any indicator, which is, you know, I'm probably not, nobody's necessarily median or typical, but there's a great thirst for, you know, 
conversations that are, have nothing to do with COVID-19. So no, I'm all, up, I'm all up for it. Yeah. And I think, so you and I met at the Columbia golf banquet, uh, two months ago and I was, you know, sh- shocked to see you there. I mean, I'm, I'm a big listener of Freakonomics and, uh, it was a, it was a thrill sincerely meeting you. And I'm curious, uh, what your relationship is with golf and how you got into it. And just, you know, cause it was, it's, that's what I love about golf. It brings people together from all different, uh, I guess, areas. Um, and I'm curious about your kind of golf story. Yeah, that is true. So I did not grow up with golf. I wish I had because I'd be better. Um, I started, you know, I I probably I got a set of clubs the first time I ever played. uh, So my first kind of life and career before I was doing, um, you know, writing was playing music. And uh, I was in a band in, um, well, the the band that was kind of most serious I was in starting college was I went to Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina. And one of the guys in the band grew up playing golf was a pretty, I mean, I don't really recall how good he was, but he was a really nice swing, just naturally he came from a family of golfers and they took me out a couple times and I loved it, but it's hard. And, you know, I grew up playing baseball, so it, it seemed easy. It seemed like it should be easy and it wasn't. So I played a few times and I was very frustrated because, you know, nobody likes to suck at anything, especially in public. Um, and and also it's just embarrassing because you're playing with people and they're hitting the ball straight and you're hitting it in the woods and they you make them wait for you so you know i think we all know that all of us who you know at some point were really bad and then um i didn't really play for many 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 years i had a set of clubs somehow i play maybe once a year with a brother of mine who was even worse than me then about maybe eight or nine years ago uh with my family we do live in new york we rented a house outside the city I had, my kids were maybe, uh, I don't know, nine and 10 at the time. And, um, they like to go to this local driving range just for kicks when we were up there and I would go with them and, and I would, you know, I, I loved the idea of it, but I just hated being bad. So I thought, you know, what if I try to work at it a little bit, maybe take a couple lessons. And, and my goal, basically my resolution was I'm going to either, um, get to mediocre or never play it again, just because it was too painful to be so bad. So I did take a couple lessons and start to work on it, and I got a little bit better. Then I ended up joining um, a, a club in in outside of New York City called St. Andrews Golf Club, and that's actually brings me to house. That was maybe eight or nine years ago, and I was I was still quite terrible then. I'm significantly less terrible now, but not good. My handicap's an eleven seven as we speak, so I'm you know, happy to have gotten there. I'd, I'd, I'd like to get a lot lower. Um, but I actually joined St. Andrews because of Columbia. So years ago, um, my Freakonomics co-author, Steve Levitt, who's a good golfer, grew up playing competitively. He and I were working on what we thought would be a Freakonomics of golf book. And the, the idea was essentially to, to try to use as much analytic ability and thinking ability and strategic ability to write a book where we could help the average golfer get better without actually working hard to get better since, you know, that's an option that many people plainly choose not to do or don't have the, you know, the time and money to do. And we were working on this book in collaboration with Luke Donald, who not that much earlier had been the world number one and Pat Goss, Luke Donald's coach, who's the coach at Northwestern. And, um, that book didn't work out to make that long story very short. Uh, we worked on it two or three years. It just, we weren't getting material that was interesting or useful. So we put it in a, in a drawer like you do with books that go sideways. Um, 
But during the process of that, we were hanging out in Chicago with Luke and Pat. And uh, one day Luke was sitting in the bunker, standing in the bunker, just working on his sand game for like two hours, which is why he's unbelievably good. He works and works and works. And then, you know, we had some lunch and then he went out back and he played some more. He practiced some more. And then at the end of the day, the Northwestern Golf College team came over and Pat Goss started working with them. And it was at this country club. And I just thought, I like the idea of a country club that welcomes the college team to come play, uh, that they want the young people around. They want that kind of, you know, energy and so on. So I started to look around where in New York City does the Columbia um, team practice. Um, I'd gotten uh, an MFA, uh, gone to grad school at Columbia. So I had some connection and turned out that was St. Andrews. Um, I found a way to get myself invited to uh, play. It turned out a guy I knew was a member there. I didn't even know he was a golfer. He took me up. I joined as fast as I could. And then I got to be a little friendly with um, Rich Muller, the Columbia golf coach. And um, so try to I do try to, you know, whatever, support the team a little bit, follow the team. And then also in the last couple of years, I've started um, working with Rich a little bit. Um, he coaches me in his, in the indoor Columbia facility, um, which I maybe I'm not supposed to talk about. Maybe that's a special uh, side benefit. <laughs> I get Improper for, benefits and NCAA yeah, don't yeah. normally go together. <laughs> I mean, uh, I don't know. I mean, I do pay um, and I don't know whether the money goes to the program or not, but I do give to the program a little. So maybe that's a. You know, I, it, when the when the when the actual golfers need to get in there, I'm definitely long gone. I can tell you that. So anyway, so I, I really like, you know, I don't know the guys on the team very well, but I really like being around them. And, um, you know, Rich and I have a lot of conversations about kind of the difference between coaching and teaching. And, um, you know, for him, I think I'm a fun challenge because he's getting these young players who are already really good. And I'm an old guy who's, who's not very good, but I'm really excited about learning. And, and so, um, so anyway, so yeah, so I now play golf, um, as often as I can, as often as life allows, which in the last, uh, you know, five months has been, um, uh, which in the last five weeks has been, I guess, zero times, but immediately before the, uh, uh, immediately before the shutdown, I play, I got to play a bunch in California and that was exciting. So I'm just kind of, when I go to sleep at night, trying to remember the highlights and forget the lowlights of those rounds. Steven, would you say um, that golf engages more of your creative side or more of your quantitative side? I, it's interesting because you have, you know, you said you, you have a master of fine arts, uh, You've played in a band. You you write. You do a lot of stuff creatively, but yet, uh, you know, Freakonomics. The, these topics of some of these books are are much more analytical, if if that's fair to say. Yeah. Um, yeah so no, I, I was just I, wondering, yeah, what the, the golf? I'm I'm wondering which side of that uh, golf speaks to for you. So that's I like that question a lot, and I think you've kind of identified why golf is so. You know, one of the many reasons why golf is so. Uh, enticing and and kind of addictive is it's both. I mean, it's definitely both those and, and probably five other things that we could come up with too. Um, so, you know, the qualitative or analytical is really important because look, it's physics um, and physics are pretty real. And, you know, it's, it's not to say you can't get a good result in a number of different, uh, uh, you know, manner in, in a number of different ways, um, but at the end of the day, the laws of physics, physics are pretty lawful. And, um, and there are certain things that if you do with a club, 
um, and a ball that you're <laughs> never going to get a good outcome, right? So it doesn't guarantee the outcome will be good, but there are certain things you can do where you know you'll get a bad outcome. So I do really like the qualitative and analytical, although I, I don't go crazy with keeping my own numbers. Um, I did when I started. I mean, when I started playing, when I first started to break, you know, let's say 100, um, I, I was in the, this was, you know, seven, eight, nine years ago. I would, I would literally just have a legal pad um, that I would pre-make for the, for the whole course. And on every, every shot, I would basically record a number of things about it. And then, you know, I would, I would crunch that data a little bit and try to learn. But basically what I learned was, is I was pretty bad at all phases of the game. And so I realized that the time I was spending with my legal pad and then typing it up, I should have been spending actually getting better. So that's, that was kind of my new approach. Um, and now I'm probably a little bit more dependent on video than, um, than, you know, data analysis per se, although, you know, I, I do like the data, but the creative part is what I really like. Um, you know, it's, it's funny cause watching golf on TV, you know, for people who don't play golf, I can see why it's not appealing. Although I, I'm sure there are plenty of non-golfers who do watch it, but what's so interesting to me or fun to me to watch golf on TV, it is like, it is one of the few sports, maybe the only sport where you're watching it, not purely for entertainment or as an observer, or as a fan, whatever, but you're watching for, it's like self-help TV, like maybe tennis, maybe people, I'm not a tennis player, but I can imagine if you're watching, you know, if you're watching Serena in a final of a U.S. Open and just to watch the way she manages her emotions or the way that after, you know, after she, a du you know, a double fall, what she does different to get her, you know, things like that. But with golf, it's like every shot you kind of, or I kind of at least narcissistically put myself in the shoes of this person. You try to think about what's the emotion, what's the context and what's the shot. And my favorite thing is, um, I don't know about my favorite thing, but a, a very gratifying thing is being, is getting out of trouble well. And unfortunately, you know, with my handicap, I'm in trouble a lot. Um, but I also really like, um, you know, a really tricky, you know, chip. If you're just off the green, you know, like at, at St. Andrews, the course I play, a lot of the green, you know, most of the greens are elevated. If you go a little deep, you're on a bank. So you got a downhill lie running into a, a, a sloping away green. Um, and just to really play those shots and think about playing those shots the way you think about, you know, again, as a musician, the way you think about just using your fingers kind of, you know, your mind needs to be involved, but you also need to get the mind out of the way at a certain point, let instinct take over. And so I would say my favorite moments um, playing have been when I'm not thinking qualitatively at all. So whether it's a competition or playing alone or just with friends, it's when you're so in the, in the moment to use that cliche that you're really just thinking about how to, um, you know, shape this next shot, how to um, mentally set yourself up, you know, on the par five, like from, from the first shot, like what's my plan here? Then if things deviate a little bit, can I stick with it? And so I, I love that creative part. And I know, you know, many, many, many people have said this, but I do think that golf as a kind of um, representation of, of the kind of character you have or want to have, I think it, it is really amazing. And so 
I, I do like that. I think it's um, I think it's a great way to test yourself, to improve yourself, and, and um, and you know, it's obviously infinite. Um, you'll never be as good a person, as smart a person uh, as as you'd like to be. Just as you'll never be as great a golfer as you'd like to be, but the path to improvement is always right in front of you if you're willing to like work at it. And that's what, that's what I really love about it. And what would you say the uh, best part of your game is right now? Oh, right now, the best part of my game is imagination. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Or in the last 12 months. (laughs) um, You know, like if I were to be honest, you know, look, you guys know what an 11-7 handicap player looks like. It looks like someone who can hit some good shots, but then is really inconsistent. Um, so, you know, I'm 56 years old. I I swing pretty fast for my age. I'm in pretty good shape and fairly athletic. So if I connect well, I hit it plenty far. Distance is not an issue. But off the tee, there will be days where I hit, you know, three fairways with the driver. Um, so that that can be a big problem. Um, I'd say if if there's one part of the game that is most is least inconsistent, I'll put it that way. It's probably short irons. So from you know from from the you know the wedges up to maybe an eight iron, I'm usually not terrible with those. Um, so. Um, well, as, look, I'm as like, your your uh, colleague Mark Brody has yeah. has highlighted on on uh, the No Laying Up podcast, those are kind of the the short irons, the approach shots, is where you, where the tour stars make their money. Well, that's that's why I pay attention because I'm a I, I am a fan of Mark Brody's work. Um, so yeah, I mean, look, um, if I could pick one element of my game to be thirty percent better at overnight, I'm sure I would pick putting. Just because the day, so I have not broken 80 on a hard course in my life yet. Although, uh, you know, I, I really feel like I will. Um, the, what, what, when you say, when you say hard course, what, what are your standards for a hard course? So because I haven't been playing that long, um, I haven't played a lot, a lot, a lot of courses like a lot of golfers have. Um, so the course I play St. Andrews, the slope from the member tee, I think is 143. So that's, you know, that's pretty hard. And then, as it turns out, most of the friends that I end up playing with also play at places that are pretty hard. But then once in a while, you know, there's just a course with a slope that's a lot lower or sometimes just lower par. So I've shot high 70s on courses that were par, I don't even remember, like a par 68 course or something. And then there was one that was, um, yeah, I, I mean, on those kind of courses, on a, if you put me on a course that's a slope of 125 or something, I'll probably consistently shoot low to mid 80s, you know, which is not terrible. But most of the courses I've played have been harder courses. And there, um, the highlight of my uh, career so far was this past summer where I went 10 rounds in a row uh, under 90, but not one under 80. But on those days where I'm getting close to breaking 80, I feel a different kind of feeling with the putter. Um, and that's, so if I, if I could improve one aspect by a bunch, it would be that. So you, you might naturally say, well, you must 
practice putting a lot, don't you? Since that's the one that you want to improve at. And the answer is no, I do not. Um, and that's the disadvantage of living in the city. I mean, I practice putting on my carpet a lot, but unfortunately it hasn't translated that much to the actual greens. I, I'd like to point out 143 is a really difficult slope. I, I think you're kind of underselling, uh, underselling yourself a little bit. I, you know, our home course, the, the tees we play it at is a uh, 129. And I, where's the, the, Jack's, I, I won't, Beach Golf the, Club. the Jack's Beach Municipal Course? And mm-hmm. I, I won't apologize for breaking 80 there. I'm, <laughs> I'm thrilled. <laughs> yeah, but I've also done that like three times in my life, too. So I'm, no, I'm, I'm, I'm a legit 11 7 for all that that means, meaning I can put together four or five or six really good shots in a row. And then I can, you know, double or even triple two holes in a row it you know but the last round i played before quarantine happened to be at tory pines i was out there for work and um it was tory south and i had um a pretty crappy round i think i ended up um i don't know i could look it up on the the network um i think i probably shot 92 ish or something, but I did Eagle number 13. I hold out from 80 yards on my third shot. So that's the, that's the hole that I think about. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, That's the hole I think about. (laughs) So Steven, we want to shift gears. I'm curious you, so Freakonomics is, is kind of the, I'm sure taking up most of your time. Are you a professor at Columbia? I want to make sure I'm, I'm on. Um, no, I don't. Not. I don't teach. Years and years ago when I was getting, so I got an MFA in the writing um, uh, program there. Um, uh, and I also taught in the English department there when I was in grad school. And I thought that that's what I would do would, would be to teach college and write novels. But I, I didn't really, I didn't love teaching. You have to be um, pretty unselfish, I think, to be a good teacher. And I just really wanted to do my own writing. So I, I, I haven't really ever taught um, since then. And so, and then the podcast started in 2010. Yeah, that's right. And was it intent? I'm curious about the, the backstory there, because we're kind of in the content business as well. And um, on a much exponentially <laughs> we're, we're pierced, smaller we're scale. Pierced. I, I, didn't, I know that came out in a, a way I didn't want it to, but I'm curious, was it intended to be radio initially? Because that is like the early, early, you know, infant days of, of the podcast medium and, and what it looked like back then compared to now. Yeah, it was, it was, I mean, in retrospect, it didn't feel that early then, but, um, yes. So the way it worked is, uh, so I have this partner, Steve Levitt, who's an economist at the university of Chicago, the good golfer. And we had written, so we wrote our first book together. Freakonomics was 2005. And then we finished our second book, which was super Freakonomics. Um, it came out, I think in 2010. So I think between the time we finished the writing and when it came out, there's probably six or eight months in there. I was just kind of bored and lonely. Um, so I thought it'd be fun to, to do something a little new and different. And I always liked radio. I'd always, you know, I, I'd done like a little college radio and things like that. And I also like, um, I love, you know, as a writer, I've always loved interviewing people. Um, but as a print journalist, you know, most of what you uh, most of the interview ends up getting cut from the piece. You just can't accommodate it. So I thought that uh, doing radio or a podcast kind of loosely organized around Freakonomics might be a nice idea. And um, 
so the one smart thing I did was I took a look around at the people who were producing radio slash podcast then, and it was, you know, the big commercial outfits, but then public radio. And I liked public, public radio a lot, but I'd done a lot of work with them as a guest and so on. And I just knew that they, like most places are very, very, you know, it's not just bureaucratic. It's like, they're driven by the top. They're, they're manager driven. They're not creative driven. Um, and I just didn't. So, so I could imagine if I went to them and said, you know, Hey, I've got, you know, I'm, I've been writing these free economics books. They're fairly successful. I'd, I'd really like to, uh, make a radio show. Uh, are you interested in talking about that? What would have happened is they would have said, sure, we're interested in talking about that. And then we would have been in meetings for the next like year and a half and then if we got to yes, it would have been a yes that wasn't even the yes that I wanted to get to. And I was just by then experienced enough to know that that's the way the world works. So I thought, what if I could just do what I wanted to do um, and then take it to them and say, hey, anybody want to partner on this thing that already exists like this? And the beauty of podcasting is that it's relatively cheap, barriers to entry pretty low. And so I worked with in collaboration with a producer who was from WNYC, a guy named Colin Campbell, who was really good. He just did it freelance and we put out a few episodes and then went to WNYC and ended up doing a partnership with them that lasted several years. Then podcasting became a thing. Um, I still have some relationship with WNYC. They still distribute our show to NPR stations, but uh, we make the podcast now with a different production partner called Stitcher and, um, and it's pretty loose. I mean, they, they basically, um, fund it and distribute it and, and market it, but we control all the editorial and that's the way I like it. Um, because, you know, at heart, I'm a writer and writers are, uh, fairly control freakish. And so if I get to have all the, all the control over what we're doing, how we're doing it. Um, who we interview, who we don't, how we edit, how we produce it, how we score it, what kind of music we get, all that, that makes me really happy. And so that's, that's the situation we're at now. But I saw none of this coming 10 years ago, for sure. Yeah. And I'm, I'm always impressed with, um, I kind of, I guess, got into podcasting with just basically This American Life, which is kind of radio turned into a podcast yeah. and then with your podcast uh, years ago. And I'm, you know, impressed by the diverse topics that you're able to cover under the kind of hidden side of everything being the, uh, I guess, the ethos of things. Do you ever, especially early on, of ideas? Were you going to no, say? No, not so much that. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm more curious about like having imposter syndrome or like early on, oh, and, and yeah. when you're talking to somebody, you know, outside of your knowledge base, um, yeah. or you know, how to put together something that's educational when you know, and, and that will lead into. I'm also curious about how long it takes for you to put a show together. Right. Um, especially with something that's, you know, completely outside of your purview. Right. Yeah. So that's, those are really, really good questions. And those are exactly the kind of things, you know, that I think about all the time in doing this. So I would say, look, I would say almost everything we do is outside my knowledge base. Cause I'm really not an expert in anything. You know, I've come to know a fair amount about some things but really, you know, the, the point of Freakonomics Radio is for, for me not to be telling the world, hey, this is what things are. This is how you should think about things. This is, you know, this is what I think about the world. It, it's really me being, you know, the host, the interviewer, and really trying to represent the listener. 
Um, so what I do is I come up with an idea. The idea can come from anywhere. It can be something I thought of. It can be inspired by, uh, you know, I read a lot of academic papers. I try to have a really um, diverse group of, um, you know, friends and, and people that I, that I know that are politically very diverse, that are, you know, occupationally very diverse and so on. And so sometimes, you know, it always starts with the idea. And the idea is often just a question, something that makes you think, huh, I wonder why this works the way it does. I wonder how this came to be. I wonder why we don't do that when it seems more sensible. But then um, this is how I try to avoid the imposter syndrome is then we work really hard to find people who actually know the answers to these things. And so that gets into the, you know, how long does it take to do it? Um, so we have a, a production crew of... Um, so the team is, I guess, in total about uh, seven or eight people. The core people are, there's an executive producer, Allison Craiglow, who kind of runs the whole thing. Um, personnel, um, you know, the, just everything from the top level, but also she's involved in, in the editorial as well. And then there's a technical director who's um, Greg Rippon, who is... Uh, uh, responsible for the recording, the mixing, and the scoring, all of which, you know, need to be done really well for it to work. And then we have three kind of, you know, full-time kind of senior or regular producers. Um, and then another couple, uh, three other people who work doing other aspects of it, website and and editing the episodes into hours and so on. So, you know, that sounds, that can sound to you like a big staff, like to you guys, I'm guessing you don't have eight people. So it could <laughs> We're sound a small really, shop. <laughs> yeah, it could sound really huge. On the other hand, when we think about the amount of output that we're doing and the kind of labor intensivity of what we're doing, it feels like a really small outfit because for every episode, you know, after the idea comes the research to find the people who will be good to talk about this. And usually I would say we average maybe three or four guests per episode. So for each of them, there's research into, first of all, who's the best in their realm, find the best, do research on them. The producers will create a prep document for me to read. It's usually somewhere between, you know, eight and 20 pages. And then we interview the person for usually 60 to 90 minutes. But then there's the logistics in setting that interview up as well. So the producers are doing a lot of that work. And then, you know, let's say we've interviewed five people each for 90 minutes and we take those transcripts, um, get them transcribed properly. Um, and then the producer will create a rough draft of a script. Then it comes to me. Then I usually kind of rewrite the script to some degree, somewhere between, you know, somewhere between 10 and 95 percent rewrite just totally depends. And then we record my narration and we edit around the tape cuts. So, you know, in terms of person hours that go into one hour of finished tape, I've, I haven't done the math and I'm guessing it's in the neighborhood of at least a hundred person hours per hour of tape, which look is a stupid way of doing podcasts. Um, because you know, like, like Joe Rogan is probably the biggest podcast in the world. He just sits down and turns the mic on and they talk for <laughs> yeah. two and a half hours. Well, sometimes four done. hours. <laughs> yeah. It really just and, depends uh, on Joe's mood. <laughs> exactly. And, and I love that. I mean, I was just right before COVID shut things down. I was actually in California to do, uh, uh, to be on some podcasts out there. And every one of those podcasts was the opposite of ours. I did the Bill Simmons show. I did the Joe Rogan show and I did, um, uh, Dax Shepard's armchair expert. 
And in each of those, you know, there were different degrees of preparation, uh, but it, you know, it's a different animal. So some, so I came home from California and thinking like, what am I doing? I feel like I'm the guy. It's like, I feel like there's a restaurant out there that makes this food that is so delicious and so easy to get and so affordable and everybody loves it. And then I'm making like these little handcrafted crepey things <laughs> that like, what am I doing? But the problem is I really like it this way. Yeah. I really like living with an idea for a long time and really trying to get it to where we can. So I would say the average episode from from conception to publication is probably about three months. So we've always got many, many, many episodes in different um, stages of development. But in the COVID era, in the last, you know, I guess since, um, I guess earlier, the middle of March, we've put out every week, we've crashed an episode. We've put out a brand new episode, often with three or four one one time we did one episode when the first uh, federal bailout um, act came, the two trillion two point two trillion dollar CARES Act. We interviewed in the space of maybe eighteen hours. We interviewed seven people, all of whom were either former White House economists or one U.S. senator, and we did it remotely because nobody, you know, everybody's working from home. And we put that out as like a 50 minute show. That was probably the the high point or the low point, depending on how you look at it, on, on turning around something fast in our world because it doesn't happen. But even that, you know, we probably had about, we talked to, let's see, seven people, probably on average, you know, 45 minutes. So we had several hours of tape. And even that, we boiled that down and scripted into a 50 minute show or so. So it's just... Um, it's, it's just the style of writing that I prefer, but I don't, I don't mean to imply that it's the best. It's just, you know, what I'm comfortable with. No, I think the, the, obviously both formats work, but what, one thing I appreciate similar to this American life is it feels more like an event or a, you know, the, the detail that goes into it is it, it's not lost on me. Um, it feel instead of it just being like, a, you know, a recap of something or, you know, let's, we got to get our thoughts out there. Like a lot of yeah. TV shows have become, or, you know, like sp sports recap shows, which kind of inning eaters, I guess you could say for, for yeah. TV networks, yeah. it feels more like 60 minutes, right? Where it's like, yeah. okay, everyone's going to sit down and the tick, the tick, tick, ticks coming on. And it's like, it's the, the countdown on my weekend. So that's depressing, but it's also like, I look forward to that <laughs> because I know that they're going to come with something that's, that's very well produced and you can tell the time that went into it. So that's why I yeah. was curious about about uh, you know, the production. I mean, I'll be honest. It sounds like you are like me and like most people, which is you like both styles. And, you know, there are 10 other styles that we didn't even get into. So, um, you know, I, I, I sometimes just like the feeling. So I have, I've written a bunch of books now and there's a feeling when you're in the middle of a book. And for like 15 or 20 years, I was always in the middle of a book. And there's a feeling when you're in the middle of one that you just have this like, gigantic pet and sometimes the pet is like you're happy you got the pet and many times you're thinking like why did I ever get this pet it requires so much care and so much feeding and tending to and it's always in your head like you can never you can never go away from it for more than like you know six or eight hours and that's what it feels like your mind is always in gear when you're on a book so when I started the podcast I thought man, this is great. This is the opposite of a book because it's just going to be like a short weekly show. The problem is now it's the same relationship 
to the material it's just compressed into one week so it's just like the the, the misery is more intense um and then the minute like we happen to be talking right now late afternoon on a wednesday we publish an episode tonight at 11 p.m eastern that we didn't even start working on until last thursday which for us is very 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 fast it's about how what's the best way to ration a mechanical ventilator in a hospital if there if there's this overflow of COVID-19 patients and a shortage of ventilators so it's about like the ethical medical and economic views on on how to do that and so that would like when you're in the middle of that episode your brain is nowhere but there um for for those three four five six days in this case but usually it's um you know longer than that so I just, you know, I want my other style of eating often. So actually, it's one thing we're doing right now is starting this Freakonomics Radio channel or network. I can't remember what we're calling. I think it's a network where there will be some other shows, some of which I'm involved in, some of which I'm not, that will just be able to, um, you know, have different degrees of accessibility, which I think is important because the intensity kind of gets to you after a while. Do you ever get down the road with a topic and a potential show and then um, have a need to ditch it, uh, whether through, I, I don't know if anything ever becomes like uninteresting to you yeah. or for other reasons, uh, do, do you have many topics or shows you have to throw away? Yeah, I would say, so we try to throw things away before we get too far in. Um, so I would say the most typical thing that gets thrown away is you have an idea, you think it's an interesting idea, you try to do as much smart prep as you can before you start the really labor-intensive stuff of, you know, getting someone set up to interview, you know, you don't want to waste their time, cost money to get people in studios. That's the other thing. We only do radio quality tape, so we don't use phone tape. So that's more labor-intensive, more time-consuming, more expensive, and so on. But then I would say that probably at least maybe mm, I would say at least three to five times a year, you'll start on an episode that you think is going to be somewhere between decent and good. And then you'll do one or two interviews and you just say, you know, this is not is not decent or not good. And then you, and then we try to kill those fast. But I would say there's been in the last um couple years i mean I, I can tell i can look at my inventory sheet i can see that there are like five to ten episodes that we pretty much finished that we just didn't think were very good and that's you know so that's that's very costly in a number of ways not just money but you know you don't want to waste the time of people that you're interviewing you don't want to waste the time of our producers and it's opportunity cost because you know all that time that you're spending on those episodes that didn't work was time that you could have been making the episodes that did work better but, you know, as with golf, there's some science and there's some art and it, it's you just kind of have to live with the, the variables being what they are. Um, I also take it as a little bit of a badge of courage to look at my inventory of all the episodes that we killed because, you know, they weren't very good and I don't want to put out crap. That's, you know, that's the other thing about having a show that's a weekly and not more often. Um, weekly is hard enough. Um but if you try to, for, for me, at least, if we were trying to do it more frequent, you'd be not just tempted, but forced to put out stuff that just wasn't um, as good. I've put, I've probably started and put away in a drawer more books even than I've published books. I've put 
gosh, five to 10 books in a drawer and, and they belong there. You know, they really do. So along that same vein, what would be, uh, over the last couple years or maybe even over the course of your podcast radio, uh, career, like some of the biggest like lessons you've learned, like for, for instance, I say the word like a lot and I didn't realize that until <laughs> I listened to myself on recording and I'm, you know, I'm saying like, you know, so I'm not sure if the, what, I guess, let me rephrase the question. What do, what do you feel like you've improved the most on as a host? Yeah. So I still struggle with like, and you know, um, you know, just like that. I didn't even <laughs> mean to say that one. Yeah. Uh, and one of the advantages of having an edited show is you can edit out, uh, you know, if I'm interviewing someone, I think I just said, you know, if I'm in it, right. Yeah. It's of course. Just, you know, it, it, it's just, once right. you put, once you hear it yourself, you're like, Absolutely. it's all you hear. <laughs> it's the yawn, right? So no, I have all kinds of verbal habits and ticks, many of which are fine and many of which I don't like. And I definitely try to cut down on them, but you know, your brain is what it is. You are who you are. And if you try to change it too much, at least for me, I find then it starts to become insincere, inauthentic, and artificial. And one thing I love about the medium of a podcast, and I'm guessing with your guys' podcast as well, one thing that makes it really attractive to make it and for people to listen to it is that it's real. It's actually people talking to each other and it's a it's a kind of a third dimension that you don't get in print when i was a, a print guy you know i was a writer and an editor and i loved 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 it i still love print and i still write my scripts for the radio show as if it's print but then it's it's different because you deliver it different and so on but the thing about you know i could write let's say an eight thousand word new york times magazine cover piece on someone, Steven Spielberg, let's say, okay, which I once did. And then I look, if I were to go look at that piece now, as a writer, I realize, you know, how much control you have as a writer. Of those 8,000 words, how many words are actually his, Spielberg's, even though he's the only subject of the piece? Maybe like 2,000, and then maybe there's another 1,000 words that are other people saying stuff, other quotes. And then there's like probably 5,000 words that are me, the writer, kind of telling the reader what's going on, how to think about this, how to interpret this, putting things in context. So more than 50% of the episode, of the article is some writer putting a distance between you, the reader, and the subject, Spielberg. With a podcast, no matter how much I, as the host, talk, and I try to talk a lot less than the subjects you're also hearing directly from the subjects and you're hearing everything about the way that they express their ideas, whether how confident they are, whether they're sad about it, happy about it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there is like a level of, uh, of authenticity there that is really valuable. And again, it's not like we podcasters invented this. I mean, spoken word has been around for a while and like radio is around for a while. But I think what podcasting has done, because there are so many different kinds of conversations, whether it's about golf or economics or pop culture, or whatever, no matter what you're into, you can find someone who does it pretty well. And you're just getting it at a level, you're getting information and emotion on a level that's got so much authenticity and sincerity to it that you can't get anywhere else. And so I try to always temper, um, I, I do try to get better at interviewing at narrating at 
the thing I work hardest on is just try to ask better questions. That's to me the most important thing because I don't care too much how I sound. If I sound like a, an idiot for asking a question that's obvious, I don't care. If I sound like a jerk for asking a question that, you know, sounds a little insensitive or whatever, I don't really care about that. What I care about is asking the questions that's going to get the very interesting or smart or influential or whatever person on the other end to say something that the listener will say, oh, wow, I did not know that and or I never would have thought of that and or that's given me a new way to think about the world or my life. That's what I'm after. Those are like the goodies. So that's the thing that I work hardest on improving. And like golf, I think it comes just with time. The more time I can spend on a prep before interviewing someone, the better questions I'm going to come up with. It's, you know, simple as that. Absolutely. And so with that, what do you have? And this is probably a question you get a lot. A favorite? Don't be don't be ashamed of this question. I'm not. I'm curious. I'm curious. You have a huge archive of content. What's your favorite Freakonomics podcast? And I'll and and for whatever reason, one that's near and dear to your heart, or where Hmm. you know you got the and and let's take out the recency bias. So yeah, uh, not in the last five weeks or five months. Hmm. More so like in the in the in the past. So I'm really bad with fill in the blank. I'm better at um, multiple choice. I will. All right. So let me, let me first give a cliche answer. The cliche answer is the, the only episode I really like is the one I'm working on at the moment. I never go back and listen, but I, you know, I have memories. I, I think the, I think maybe the best. Okay. So this is pathetic also, cause this is 10 years. This was like in the first or second year. So that means that basically we peaked early, but um, I think the most valuable episode we ever did was um, called the upside of quitting, where we looked at the fact that m- many, many people are convinced that if they ever quit anything, that they're losers, and that they can just imagine Vince Lombardi like glaring down at them and saying, "You, f- you know, you, you're such a loser <laughs> and a cretin." And we made the argument that like quitting can be an incredibly useful thing, you know, because economists talk about sunk cost and the sunk cost fallacy. Sunk cost if you spent a bunch of time or money on something or energy or thinking, the natural inclination is to say, well, I, I, I've, I've already spent two years on my whatever X, my golf game, my PhD, trying to become a carpenter, whatever. So like, if I quit now, I'm throwing that away. And actually that's, that's what's called the sunk cost fallacy. So I really like that episode. I, I I think it would horrify me to listen to it because it was early and I think I sounded like I was trying to be a radio person, which I, which would be unappealing for me to listen to. But other people, there was a, there were a lot of people that heard that and really thought about um, kind of, you know, how to reassess their lives. Um, I think it was mostly people deciding to change careers or maybe to join or leave the military, join or leave college, whatever. I think some people probably left their spouses because of that. That was not quite the intention. Um, but I, I'd say that was maybe the one that I feel pretty good about because it was taking these concepts that I think about a lot from economics and psychology and so on and applying them in a way that I think they hadn't really been applied. And so, but I don't know, you guys sound like you listen to the show. Do you, why don't you tell me what, okay. So here's our, our, um, when we're trying to hire people, we have kind of a homework packet and, and it includes, um, two questions. One of which is 
tell us uh, an episode of our show that w- we did that you thought was pretty good and why, and then tell us one that you thought was pretty bad and, and how you would improve it. So I, I don't mean to put you on the spot by suggesting that you have at the front of your mind a bad and or a good episode of ours, but I'd be curious to know, you tell me what you think was good, what you think was bad, then I'll, I'll feedback. Well, I would say the one you did on socialism recently um, and it's funny, I have, you know, I, th- I think I don't have the commute going on, so I'm actually listening. We're, we're putting out a lot more podcasts, but I'm not listening to as many, right, as, right. Uh, which is an interesting uh, behavior <laughs> change. Um, right. But I think that one, it took a topic that has so much uh, baggage attached to it, and it, it did exactly what you went and talked to the experts, and you also defined the differences between, you know, the Scandinavian countries, Venezuela, and, and kind of laid out both sides of the case, actually, which I thought was, uh, um, it, it made me think about a topic that is very misunderstood in a better way. And actually, the the quitting one I listened to as well a long time ago, and you've just reminded me that I might go, I might actually go back and listen to it because I did find that one pretty interesting if I remember correctly. Okay, cool. Any 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 really sucky ones though? Um, that's a tough question because uh, I'd have to. And by the way, my feelings my cannot be hurt because you know I live in the age of Twitter and email. So, well, I would say this: anything. I'd say my favorite one is probably the one that you're going to do on the PGA Tour at some point, <laughs> uh, just because yeah. I would love to see you dive into the business of golf. Right. It, yeah, Stephen. I think I'm more. Um, my, I feel like I filter them out right away. Where, like, if yeah. it's a topic that just doesn't grab me, I probably just won't listen. Uh, but if I choose to listen, I will <laughs> kind of opposite of your, your quitting. I, I will listen through it. And usually I enjoy, you know, I, I get something from it and I enjoy them. Um, yeah. So, but I think that's just how I, that's like my behavior is I, I think I maybe pre-screen out ones that I'm, I, I think I won't like, which <laughs> as I'm saying this out loud, I was like, well, maybe that's not the right way to do it because uh, you know, I, I'm not opening my mind to stuff, but I, I'm much more of like a, an initial screener based on topics. So I have to say both you guys, that was really shitty feedback that gave me no help. <laughs> <laughs> um, although I will say this on the socialism one, I thought that was pretty decent. Um, the frustration there is, and, and, and maybe Randy, this goes to like the notion of selecting by topic too. Like, like the narrower a topic is or the narrower a question is, I think inevitably the better job we can do with it. Um, because like we did try to say, I think that the topic of that episode or the title of that episode was something like, does anyone really know what socialism is or something like that? And like, we were trying to define it in the present political context and include history. And like, that's just really, that takes a lot of time. And so to try to do that in roughly an hour, I felt like we did a pretty decent job. So, you know, Neil, I'm glad well, you liked it. it. it the um, other reason I liked it too, it, it took a topic that is almost like not safe to talk about and like whether or not you agree mm-hmm. with like whatever political structure or whatever, it was like, this is almost like a safe space for me to like, oh, you know what? I might, <laughs> I might check this out, see what, you know, see what it's all about. And, and I felt like I learned something without being like, 
you know, um, criticized for asking a question about it or like considering like, oh, well, maybe there, maybe that is, that, that is interesting. You know what I mean? So I think yeah. that that the podcast format, cause people do listen to podcasts in intimate settings. You're folding clothes. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, like I actually listen to them on when I'm, uh, going for a run. Um, so it's, it's a way to almost be like, I don't have to tell anybody I listen to this, you know, or, or whatever. I think that that top, <laughs> that specific topic was, was a, a good one for the podcast format. But you know, what you're saying also, Randy, about, you know, filtering by topic. So that, I mean, that's the great paradox of, um, I mean, of podcast sort of technology and audience. So the beauty of a podcast. So like, think about this, if you write books, so we wrote some books that sold a lot of copies, but then every time you would want to write a new book, you have to like remind the world like four or five years later, Hey, uh, we're back. We wrote this thing called a book. You remember what a book is? And there are these places where you can go to buy books and there are 250,000 books published every year. Maybe you'll decide to buy this one. What are the odds of that? That's like nuts. Now, granted, once you've had some success, you have advantages, but still it is almost reinventing the wheel. Almost. Um, with a podcast, just by accident of the technology, most people who listen to a substantial number of podcasts subscribe to them. And then, you know, they basically opt in to receive it time and again. And so really for, if you're the podcaster, like you guys are, or like we are, you pretty much own your audience. Now, if you suck, if you start to suck, or, you know, if you were never very good to begin with, they will go away. But if you keep trying hard and, 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 giving good content, you've got just this amazing technological momentum that keeps people wanting to stay with you. And so that's a blessing. So, I mean, that's, that doesn't exist in book writing and in a lot of other media. Well then question for you, does it, does the amount of downloads, I mean, it, you know, from doing some research, it's like 15 million downloads a month. D does the download total impact the topics you do? Do you look back and say po political topics, for instance, or healthcare topics, or do you gravitate towards those due to the response from the listeners or, or is that not as important as just following topics that you find interesting? Yeah. So I am proud to say the, the short answer is mostly no. Like, um, I mean, the way I think about a topic is the audience has come to know what we do and they seem to like it pretty well. And what we do is just based on what we're interested in. So if I'm interested in something, I'm going to assume that most of them will be too. Simple as that. And if we do it really well. So I try very, I try not to, I never go looking around, you know, I don't, I, I look at the data all the time, but I never say, oh, people really love um, any episodes about food or whatever. And so we should do a lot more of those. I mean, you know, if I have a good idea about food, six months down the road, I might say, well, you know, people will probably like that. Sure. Let's do it. Um, but very rarely do we not do a, a topic just because we think it won't be as popular. So that is, that is the great advantage of having, having an audience. Um, but you know, you, you obviously you can't abuse that either. If you start just doing what you want to do that, that cuts across everybody's interest, cuts against everybody's interest, you're not going to last so long either. Yeah. So, well, Steven, appreciate the time. I want to wrap with one more question. Um, sure. We didn't, we, we had it on the list to talk about your, the right profile in your music career, <laughs> but I, I 
we're, we may have to, <laughs> we, to skip it. Also, Randy and I watched the reunion tour, which, yeah. which we're, we're going to fire that good. up after it this. It was no, good. No, 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 no. Uh, no, no, no. So we may put that in the show notes for the folks. <laughs> no, 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 um, no. I'm curious, uh, you know, when when quarantine and the shutdown is over, what what restaurant in New York are you most looking forward to uh, to getting back to? Ooh. So we're neighborhood people because we're lazy. Um, and there's nothing like with your family deciding on a weeknight, you know, let's get wild. You want to just go out tonight instead of that cooking? So, so um, I mean, there are like there are three within a couple blocks that immediately come to uh, four. All right. So I'll just name them. Okay. So, so this is like, all right. So if you don't live in New York, or even if you do, but especially if you don't live in New York, when everything is cool again, here are four places on the Upper West Side you should immediately come eat. One would be Tri Dim West, which is your basic dim sum Chinese, not the best ever, but pretty good. And, you know, it's a block from me, so I, I can't not go there a lot. Tri Dim West. Terralucci Evino which is a small, it's not a chain, but one guy has a few, but it's small Italian plates and good coffee and good wine, even though I don't drink wine, but apparently people like the wine. Then there's Motorino, which is a pizza place that started in the East Village. Great Yeah, there's one across pizza. the street from uh, my apartment in Brooklyn. Oh, is that Motorino's right? Motorino's delicious. Missed that you miss place. that? Definitely. Yeah. And then I would say Gin Ramen, which is great ramen and other stuff that's um so those are the four and i would suggest you like eat all, all four of them in one night just because uh because you can because it's a celebration yeah it's yeah. a celebration <laughs> all right exactly. good i wanted i wanted to leave us on a, on a good note something to look forward to i would like to eat at those four places with you two guys and then okay here's what we'll do let's not be gluttons we'll eat it like two of them and then go play 18 Oof. no even better we eat at one, go play nine. You did another, play 18. You did a third, nine more. But if it's fun, make it 18 more. And then one more, top it off with like some dim sum for dessert. How's we, that? Well, that'd be great. We may need the shutdown to continue for us to get back and forth from the <laughs> golf course. <laughs> I don't know. Golf in New York is an all day affair just to get it's in 18. True. It's true. It's so, true. I look forward to doing it someday though with you guys. Definitely. Steven, thank you very much for your time and, My and pleasure. Uh, be safe. Appreciate it. Nice to talk yeah. to you guys. Yep. See you Thanks, later. Steven. Okay. Bye-bye. Favorite trapper, the absolute truth, yeah, no joke. Who